morning. Today's reading is in the book of James, chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. In the Pew Bible, that's on page 856. James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, or you will be condemned. Now, if you noticed, six times in six verses, the word patience or its companion perseverance is used. You notice that? Kind of had to smile when I read these verses thinking, Lord, you want me to speak on patience? Really? Let's just say I'm still a work in progress. I don't do well waiting. I pace. I tap my fingers on the steering wheel. I check the watch and the clock. I give up when I'm on hold. I wear out the phrase, hurry up, to my family. I really do. I wear it out. And my leg even starts moving in place when I'm sitting waiting for my name to be called. And I could go on and on and on. I could appreciate the one who said, if I could store any character quality in a cookie jar, I'd store patience. Chocolate chip patience cookies. And I'd eat them all in one sitting. (laughs) So if you have this patience thing all figured out, then be patient with those of us who don't. I read that I'm in good company. Heard of a time in the life of New England preacher Philip Brooks who was usually known for his calmness and poise. But on this one occasion, he was feeling very frustrated and anxious. And and, and a good friend of his, his saw him pacing on the floor like a caged lion. What's the trouble, Pastor? asked the friend. And Pastor Brooks replied, the trouble is that I'm in a hurry, but God isn't. I'm in a hurry but God isn't. You know the feeling? You know the feeling. Perhaps you're wondering why that prayer, the answer to that prayer is taking so long. Why that injustice injustice has yet to be resolved. Or or perhaps you find yourself in some drawn-out, messy situation, and you wonder, God, when are you going to do something? When are you going to step in? Does it seem like the oppressors are winning? Are you trying to do the right thing, but God seems silent through it all? 
Well, the people to whom James is writing here have been on the receiving end of the cruelty of the rich. They have been persecuted for their faith, and they are undergoing intense suffering. Very likely, some of them are about to collapse under the weight of mistreatment, troubles, and injustices. And the cry of their heart may very well be, Lord, when are you going to do something? James's reply, quite simply, is be patient. The Lord is coming. Be patient. The Lord is coming. Now, what does patience have to do with the Lord's coming? Everything. Now, we need to understand something about biblical patience as it's mentioned here in our passage, because it's directly tied to the Lord's coming. We mustn't get this idea that patience suggests a, a passive resignation, that we idly sit by, uh, by with a Christian smile on our face and, and say, all is well. The Greek words for patience are best defined as steadfast endurance. Steadfast endurance. It means we, we bear up under trial. It means we, 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 we endure difficult people. Why? Because we know that there's something better. We know that all the things will be made right someday to the glory of God. We know that what is to come when we pass from this life to our eternal home is far better than the best thing we experienced here. You see, biblical patience is longing for the coming of the Lord and to live in great anticipation of that next big event. Because we will one day. We will see how God will bring everything about. And so we are to live with a great anticipation of that day when Christ will return. It begs the question, loved ones, are you ready? Are you ready for the Lord's coming? Are you ready and looking with great anticipation for his coming? That's the tone of these verses. Our study in James has brought us face to face with the genuineness of our faith. We're not to play games with our faith. We need to be serious about it. And so James has taken us through a series of tests to which we can measure whether our faith is real or not. Well, the test of true faith from these six verses is that it's a faith that waits in expectation. It is a faith that waits in expectation. Do you have a real faith? Do you have a genuine faith? Do you have a true faith? Well, answer this. Is it a faith that waits in great expectation, anticipation of Christ's coming? Am I living in the expectancy of Christ's return? Am I ready? Am I ready? Well, then it should be evident by how we respond to injustices and the troubles of life. I mean, what shows? Impatience or patience? I mean, what do we do when we are in a hurry and God isn't? I love the story of the man whose car stalled at an intersection, and no matter what he did, he could not get his car started. Well, there was a guy in a pickup truck behind him who was just back there laying on his horn. 
Well, after listening to this for a while, the driver of the stall vehicle walked back to the driver of the pickup, and he said, you know, I'm sorry, but I can't get my car started. But I tell you what, if you'll go to my car and get in and give it a try, I'll stay here in your truck and blow your horn for you. (laughs) I like that. Not a bad approach. Listen, you can honk your horn all you want. It's not going to change the situation. Is that how we handle trials? Sit fuming in anger and lean on our horn. There's a better way. James writes that we might guard against impatient, faint-hearted grumbling. We're to live in eager expectation of the Lord's coming, making sure that we are ready. And James provides us then with three examples of patience in these verses. See, what we should clearly see from each of these examples that he gives us in these verses is that while we wait, there are two aspects to our waiting. There are those things that are within our control, and there are those things that are not. Here's the bottom line truth. Pretty straightforward. Here's the bottom line truth for us this morning. While we wait, we are to honor God with what we can control and trust God with what we cannot control. That's what this is all about. While we wait, we are to honor God with what we can control and trust God with what we cannot control. That's what we're to do. When we're in a hurry and God isn't. And to help us fully understand that, James provides us with three examples of what that looks like. First of all, we see the faith of the farmer. The faith of the farmer. If you're not there, be there, please, in your Bibles in James chapter 5. And we're going to look at verse 7. James 5, verse 7. Because we see this first example here, and we see the faith of the farmer. He says in verse 7, Be patient then, my bro- be patient then brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. Now, do you see why this illustration is so effective? It's effective for a couple of reasons. The first reason that this effectively teaches us about patience is that it directs us to what is in our control. What do we know about the work of a farmer? I've been around farmers, and so have many of you. You know the farmer is a hard worker. He must work the ground. He must prepare the soil. He must cultivate it, plant seeds. He must tend to it all. He must get up early in the morning. He just works and works and works it. All that which is within his control. While we wait for the Lord's return, while we wait for God to act, we must be about living a faith in action. That is what this entire book of James has been all about, a living a faith in action Living of faith and action. For example, to pray, God do something about the poor. And yet when we have opportunity to do something about the poor ourselves, we do nothing. Then ours is not a real faith. That's what he says. It's an action. And as we expectantly wait for the return of the Lord, the example of the farmer teaches us that we must give ourselves to that which is within our control. Then what? Then what? What must the farmer then do? He must what? Wait. Wait. 
wait patiently. See, the second reason that this is such a powerful example is that it shows us there are things out of our control, loved ones. The farmer does all that he can, and then he must depend on the weather. He had to wait for the early rain that would come in late October and early November, and he would then have to wait for the heavier rain to come in December through February, and and then he'd have to wait for the spring rains to come. All of that was out of his control. It wouldn't do him any good to fret about it. It wouldn't do him any good to fight against it. It wouldn't do him any good to insist that he has fruit in the middle of the process. He could only wait in the positive confidence that the harvest will come. He must endure the process. That's where many of you are at this morning, in this process. You don't want to be in this process. You just want to get to the product. And God says, no, I'm keeping you there. I'm keep endure the process. Wait. Wait. So when you find yourself under the pressure of trials, when life doesn't make sense, when things don't add up, when everything inside of you wants to quit, remember the harvest is coming. Not everything is settled right when we want them to be settled. True. There was a farmer in Midwestern state who had a strong disdain for religious things and religious people. And as he would plow his field on Sunday morning, he would shake his fist at the church folks who passed by on their way to worship. Ah, you're going to worship. I'm going to work. We'll see who comes out better. Well, October came and the farmer had his first crop, the best in the entire county. When the harvest was complete, he sent word to the local paper, which belittled the Christians for their faith in God. He wrote this. He said, faith in God must not mean much if someone like me can prosper. Well, the response from the Christian community was quiet and polite. The next edition of the town paper, a small ad appeared. It said this simply, God doesn't always settle his accounts in October. (laughs) It's true. God doesn't always settle his accounts in October. There are so many things out of our control. We say, God, why aren't you doing anything about this? Look! Doesn't always settle it right then. There are so many things out of our control. The car that stalls at the intersection, the mess up in our reservations, the unfairness at work, the hurtful comments that seem so random and injustice because of biases and prejudices, being overlooked for that promotion, death of a loved one, a child who walks away from a faith, losing a job, a change in that meeting that takes us from my kid's game, trying circumstances that pile up one on top of another. So much of life seems out of our control, does it not? What do we do? Fight against it. Worry about it. We sang it earlier. Instead of fighting that which is out of our control, we need to raise our white flag. We surrender to you, Lord. When we're in a hurry and God isn't, trust him with it. Honor God with what we can control and trust God with what we cannot control. 
And if we don't get this right, if we don't get this right, then we're going to, when we start to get in a hurry and God isn't, we're going to try and help God out a little. He's not moving fast enough. I'm going to give him a helping hand. He, good thing he has me. A huge temptation to avoid is taking matters into our own hands. When we start thinking that since it is taking so long and God doesn't seem to be doing anything about it, so I will, we find impatience has then taken over. And the oppressed in James' day who were being mistreated and faced faced injustices daily had to be on guard against doing something about it themselves. It's no different in our day. We run this temptation all the time. Well, if God isn't going to do something about these doctors who perform abortions, then I'm going to blow up an abortion clinic. Well, that's brilliant. Makes no sense. I'm going to help God out a little. Stop helping God out a little. Oh, if God isn't going to do something about how I've been mistreated, then I'm just going to put it up on Facebook and tell everybody what I think of them. Oh, if God isn't going to do something to remove that person from office, from leadership, then I'm going to get some things rolling. James says, be patient. It's out of your control. Let God work. He says in verse 8, what we're to do instead, he speaks speaks again of what is in our control. Verse 8, he says, you too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Now, the phrase stand firm has this sense of resoluteness resoluteness to it. It's an attitude of commitment to stay the course no matter how severe the trial. He says in verse 8 that we're to stand firm. What's the motivation for standing firm? Because the Lord's coming is near. It really is near. He wrote this many years ago, thousands of years ago, but it's still near. Nearer than before. Kind of like the little boy whose, whose family clock malfunctioned and it struck 15 times. He ran wide-eyed to his mom and he said, Mommy, it's later than it's ever been before. <laughs> I didn't know what to make of that. Each ache, each pain, each funeral, each gray hair, each weather disaster, each fill-in-the-blank is a reminder that it's later than it's ever been before. What does that mean? Let's get ready. Let's get ready. Stand firm. Let's get ready. Now, it doesn't mean that we're to go sell all that we have, go sit on our rooftops, hold hands, and sing some song and wait for the Lord's return. Some have done that, you know. It's not what he's telling us to do. While we wait, stay grounded. Stand firm. Strengthen our resolve to stay the course because we know the Lord is coming. Loved ones, it will be worth it. It will be worth it. Now, here's something that sometimes happens as the pressure mounts. Human nature, the storm gets fierce on the outside, and instead of finding refuge and safety within, among others, we do what? Verse 9. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. (laughs) What do we do? We grumble. Amazing, isn't it? We start blaming others. And usually it's toward those closest to us. I mean, why is it 
that when a trial comes against the people of God, that there can be this turning against each other from within. It's kind of this, I can't get to them, so I'll get to you instead. I can't believe the things I grumble about at home that so often have very little to do with what's happening there. It's amazing. When trials come, James says, don't start taking it out on each other. Don't start blaming the people around you for what you're going through. Don't lash out on your brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't get into this sport of grumbling. Instead, be patient. Again, honor God with what we can control and trust God with what we cannot control. We cannot control injustices done to us. We cannot control God's timing of when all things will be made right, and it may not even be until he comes again. We cannot control any of that and so much more, but we can control whether or not we're going to grumble. We can. You see, patience is not only the ability to wait, but it's how you act while you're waiting. You've heard me quote this well-put summary of of handling life's trials by Chuck Swindoll. I'm going to give it to you again. Life is 10% what happens to us and 90% how we react to it. It's true. Life is 10% what happens to us, 90% how we react to it. We can control our response. Honor God with what we can control. Trust God with what we can't. That is why James gives us the example of the farmer. Now, I spent most of my time this morning on the first point, and you're going, oh, heavens, I don't want to try your patience here. (laughs) I'm not trying to have you practice patience, but next to a lot faster. Second point. Second point. He shows us, he provides us this next example He gives us the perseverance of the prophets. Look at verse 10. Brothers, an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Gives us the perseverance of the prophets. Now, why does James provide us with examples of Old Testament prophets and the subject of patience? What do we know about prophets? Well, prophets were on the front line speaking the truth of God. But what does that have to do with patience and steadfast endurance? Well, you see, prophets didn't always see a direct correlation between their preaching and changed lives, their preaching and positive results. For example, the prophet Jeremiah, who spoke what God told him to speak, who was doing the right thing, who was sticking his neck out for God, and what happened to Jeremiah? Do you remember? He was thrown in a cistern. Micaiah, the the prophet, was slapped in the face for speaking the very words of God. You see, the prophets serve as an example of patience and that they suffered not because they did anything wrong, but because they were doing what was right. Here's the principle for us from the life of the prophets. Here's the principle for us in this matter of waiting on the Lord when we're in a hurry. We speak the truth and live the truth, not because it always works as we think it should, but because it is right. Let me say that again. We speak the truth and live the truth, not because it always works as we think it should, but because it is right. I mean, it works in the end. 
But to stand here this morning and promise you that if you do the right thing and you say the right thing, your situation will improve, that would be lying to you. It may actually get worse. We do it because it is right, and then we must trust God with the results. We must patiently trust and that God is good and it will accomplish what he sets out for it to accomplish. That's why James gives us the example of the prophets. Again, honor God with what we can control. Trust God with what we can't. What are we to do when we're in a hurry and God isn't? Wait on him. Keep doing what is right. Live right. Because God's not in a hurry. Thirdly, James gives us the journey of Job. Here's the journey of Job, verse 11. It says, as you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Now, you'll recall in the story of Job that the beginning of the, of the book, the beginning of the scene that we have is a conversation going on between God and Satan about this man of God, Job. And when God speaks of Job's righteous character, Satan replies that Job serves God and is righteous only because he has everything going for him. Job has a beautiful family. Job had lots of money. Job was very healthy. And Satan's angle is, if you take away his props, Job will curse you, God, to your face. See, Satan's argument is that no one serves God for who he is, but only for what they can get. Some cases, Satan is spot on. Not the case with Job. Under God's sovereignty, with four flattening blows, Job lost his children, 10 children. He lost his entire fortune. And with a fifth blow, was then covered with boils from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. Even Job's wife said to him, are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. And that's the kind of wife you want. Stay with me. Job's friends weren't much better. I mean, they were doing okay until they opened their mouths. I mean, they had it all figured out, didn't they? In this nice little box, nice little category that they concluded Job was suffering because of some terrible sin in his life. And that's the kind of friends you want. How did Job fare in all of this? Well, Job falls to the ground in worship of God, and he says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And then it says, in all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing, by speaking against God with wrongdoing. Now, if you've read through the book of Job lately, you're also going to read some things like this about Job. In chapter 3, verse 2, it says, he says, May the day of my birth perish. <laughs> he says in another place, Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? It says that, that he complained in the bitterness of his soul. We see Job crying out to God and sensing that God isn't answering. And towards the end of the book, Job had this lengthy, passionate outburst with all kinds of questions aimed at God. Why does James use Job as an example of patience and perseverance? Well, it isn't because Job was perfect, 
But that in the end, Job remained loyal to his God. And even in the midst of some complaining, some questioning, some outbursts, he persevered. He would not and did not renounce God. He refused to surrender his integrity. He never stopped believing in God. God still had to straighten him out a little bit. But in the end, Job saw the greatness of God. And God blessed him how? Blessed him spiritually along the way for sure. But in this case, he chose to bless him materially. And we eventually see, as James puts it here, a God who is full of compassion and mercy. But folks, it takes 42 chapters to get there. For 42 chapters, Job could only wonder, when is this going to end? Why is this happening? God is not in a hurry. You can honk your horn all you want. In the end, he will carry out his purposes. He says it here. Finally, Job could see what the Lord finally brought about. Can we wait for it? Nah, I'm in a hurry. Reminds me of the Alabama song, I'm in a hurry to get things done. I rush and rush until life's no fun. All I really got to do is live and die, but I'm in a hurry and I don't know why. Boy, that describes us. Listen, God is over all history. He'll accomplish the goal that he has decreed in eternity. What is God after? He is after a people who are his very own, who are like his son, Jesus Christ. That's what he's after. And God is taking broken and fractured people, making them whole, who are his very own. That's what he's after. And he has a purpose and plan, even when we don't understand what he's up to. But God is not in a hurry. Can we trust him? James ends this section with these words, verse 12. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, or you will be condemned. And I read that and I went, what in the world does this have to do with what you just said, James? And what does it do with about what you're going to say? How does this fit in? James seems to have gone a little off left field. Maybe a senior moment. I don't know. One thing is for certain. What we have here is exactly what God wanted us to have in his written word. So even if we can't seem to find James's flow of thought, God wasn't rambling. We're supposed to get something here. And unless I miss my guess, I think we have verse 12 in this section. Because James may still have Job on his mind as it speaks of Job not sinning and what he said. Job's lips matched his life. He never surrendered his integrity. And in times of pressure, and in times that we might grow impatient with the circumstances of life, or in the persecution that comes our way, or some trouble we face from people, we're then tempted to make our statements stronger by attaching God as our witness. I swear that this is true on a stack of Bibles this high in my grandmother's grave, whatever that means or anything else that we might attach to it. Why? To give more weight to our words. 
We should be trustworthy in our speech and our word should be good enough. I can recall as a parent of young kids that I found myself saying habitually at the end of some instruction to my kids, and I mean it. And I mean it. Now, that would suggest that all my other instructions, if I didn't attach that, I didn't mean it, apparently. It was a bad habit. Needed to be broken, as my wife gently told me. And I still, every once in a while, still find myself saying it again. And I mean it. Our words don't need an added, and I mean it. People of God, people of integrity do not need to strengthen what we say by attaching God as our witness for our words should be good enough. And as James so often does in this book, he ends sections by taking us back to what? Our tongues. It's there we get into so much trouble. And perhaps there's no greater risk than than when we grow in patience. Our tongues go all over the place. Whether it's grumbling against others or defending ourselves with many words and idle promises or it's lashing out at God for taking so long or for doing nothing, remember to not only live in light of today, but live in light of Christ's return and hold on to our integrity. Honor God with what we can control. Trust God with what we can't. Because loved ones, we don't know how much time we have left. We don't. Are you living, am I living in the expectancy of Christ's return? Does it show? The judge is standing at the door, he says. It's as if Jesus is about to ring the doorbell. Are you ready? Listen to this parable by Doug Mendenhall. Jesus called the other day to say he was passing through and wondered if he could spend a day or two with us. I must have gotten that deer in the headlights look because my wife said, what is it? What's wrong? Who's that on the phone? So I covered the receiver and told her Jesus was going to arrive in eight minutes. And she ran out of the room and started giving guidance to the kids in that effective way that marine drill instructors give guidance to recruits. My mind was already racing with what needed to be done in the next eight, no, seven minutes, so Jesus wouldn't think we were reprobate loser slobs. I turned off the TV in the den, which was blaring some weird, scary movie I'd been watching, but I could still hear screams from our bedroom, so I turned off the reality show it was tuned to. Or I turned off the kids' set in their room, because I didn't want to have to explain John and Kate plus eight to Jesus either, six minutes from now. My wife had already thinned out the magazines that had been accumulating on the coffee table. She put Christianity Today on top for the good impression. Five minutes to go. I looked out the front window, but the yard actually looked great thanks to my long, hard work, so I let it go. What could I improve in four minutes anyway? I, didn't notice the, I did notice the mail had come, so I ran out to grab it. Mostly it was Netflix envelopes and a bunch of catalogs tied into recent purchases, so I stuffed it back in the mailbox. Jesus didn't need to get the wrong idea three minutes from now about how much online shopping we do. 
I ran back in. I picked up a bunch of shoes left by the door, tried to stuff them in the front closet, but it was overflowing with heavy coats and and work coats and snow coats and pretty coats and raincoats and extra coats. We live in the South for crying out loud. Why do we buy so many coats? I squeezed the shoes in with two minutes to go. I plumped up sofa pillows. My wife tossed dishes into the sink. I scolded the kids and she shooed the dog. With one minute left, I realized something very important. Getting ready for a visit from Jesus is not an eight-minute job. The doorbell rang. C.S. Lewis put it, when the author walks back onto the stage, the play is over. It's over. I was still going to, I got to, no, it's over. God will invade. Today's the day to choose how we're going to live our lives. Today's the day to choose whether we've trusted in Christ for salvation or not. Today's the day. Today's the day. Because we don't know. We don't know when the author's going to walk back on stage. But then the play is over. Let's pray. God, what a sobering reality. So I read some of those words this past week, the judge is standing at the door. I kind of wanted to deflect that on, must be speaking to unbelievers, and ah, it must be this, and must be that, and you know what? I'm going to be judged for the works that I have done for my God. It's a judgment for us too, that know you, I don't know how much time we have. Eight minutes? Eight decades? No idea. I pray, God, that from this passage, you would convince us and show us the reality of being ready for you. Not spend our time with those things that are out of our control, but spend that time on honoring you with what is in our control and trusting you with the rest. Thank you. For this section in James, continue to speak to our hearts around it, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed.